story of what a nun sometimes tells about one of his early teachers, Nupabunna. first day when he left Thailand, throughout the time he spent in India until he returned to Thailand, this image of the Buddha appeared very clearly to him and then was sustained throughout the entire pilgrimage and the time he was away from Thailand. Obviously his mind was thoroughly focused on the Buddha, recollecting the Buddha and the purpose of his pilgrimage to worship the Buddha, express his devotion and faith in the Buddha and the teachings by travelling to India. just an image, it's a nimitta, but it points to some very wholesome inner qualities that Nupabunna obviously had developed. Of course, the, the physical body of the Buddha, as he told the Venerable Wakali, who was little bit over obsessed with the physical appearance of the Buddha, very serene, graceful, attractive appearance. Told Wakali that the Buddha told Wakali this is not the important thing in the human body, it's foul, impure. You should focus your mind on the Dhamma, the one who sees the Buddha sees the Dhamma. It's the real Buddha, it's the Dhamma. This is the beginning of our practice. Once we are training as bhikkhus, we are wearing these robes. They say in Thai, we are living under the shade of the, the robes of the Buddha. It's like a shade of shade of a tree on a hot day or in the rain. It gives you some protection against the elements. These robes protect us and bring us support as arms mendicants. More and more in the world outside of traditionally Buddhist countries. The robe is understood as a source of, or a, a symbol of the Buddhist monk. It can still be a cause for surprise when people see it. People with wrong views may not fully appreciate it. 
for us, generally speaking, it's that which brings us our support. We also call it the banner of the Arahants, symbol of the Arahants, because it's all the Arahants in the ages since the time of the Buddha. The enlightened Sangha have all worn this same robe. So when we reflect on this, it gives us some sense of personal responsibility that we're keeping up a tradition, a way of practice that the Buddha and the Arahants have already laid down and followed. <coughs> great source of inspiration, motivation, energy for our practice, but it does bring with it certain responsibilities. Another aspect of that quality of devotion and confidence in the Buddha is the acceptance of the teaching on karma. The more we practice, the more we develop mindfulness, clear comprehension and wisdom. I think for everybody is the same. The more we appreciate the way karma works and how as we practice we gain more appreciation of the, the role of karma in shaping our mind, shaping our lives, and how important everything is in terms of karma, what we think, what we say, what we do. It's constantly shaping us as a human and shaping our future and the experiences we have. Sometimes people have a simplistic view of this and think, Everything is karma, so it's just very mechanical, black and white. You do this, there'll be that result. Of course, the Buddha said it's ajintaya. It's the workings of the law of karma are beyond just basic logic and reasoning. We can't think it all through because there's so many factors involved. Factors that affect us internally in our minds and the way we make karma, karma ripens, and external factors. And of course, there is the opportunity to practice and change karma. The way karma ripens, its strength, its weakness can be affected by what we do. <coughs> Buddha actually said if the karma couldn't be overcome then there'd be no chance for religious practice in the world. So obviously the enlightened person has reached the end of karma, gone beyond it. But nevertheless it's a vital tool for our practice to appreciate that we are all making karma all the time and it brings its results. Just the very sense contact, sense impressions we receive are all coming back to us from our karma. And you'll see 
tends to almost seems to be like a law of attraction. You can't always work out the details, but you can see when the mind is in a more wholesome state, tends to attract wholesome conditions, supportive factors, situations, the environment, the people we meet and so on. When the mind is more unwholesome, tends to attract more negative things, more obstacles, more problems. And this isn't always an absolute thing, but you can see that tendency. So the more we reflect on karma, the more we have that sense of personal responsibility, awareness that what we do, say and think is constantly affecting us. Buddha pointed out with that simile somebody who makes a lot of good karma regularly every day once in a while they might slip up and allow a more negative thought to take root in their mind <coughs> or it may lead to some unwholesome speech or action some small minor unvirtuous behavior perhaps but because generally their pattern, their habit is to develop regularly good, wholesome karma, skillful karma all the time. That one lapse of mindfulness or wisdom in a situation may not influence them very much. It may give a short, unpleasant feeling in their mind, it may give some small uh, result in this very life, maybe very quickly, and then it's finished, it's gone. Because the overwhelming amount of karma they're making is wholesome, skillful. Whereas similarly, as somebody who doesn't make much good karma, who's very unwise, unskillful in their behavior, do the same kind of act, and it may have a very powerful effect on them. It may even lead them to a very un pleasant rebirth when they die. And the Buddha gave the simile about a lump of salt. You put a lump of salt in the, a cup of water, makes the water completely salty and undrinkable, unusable maybe. Slightly karma ripening for the, the person who hasn't made much good karma. You do an unwholesome deed and it can completely overwhelm them and bring them to disaster. Whereas the person who's regularly practicing in a good way, skillful way, their mind is more like the Ganges River. You throw the same lump of salt in, it hardly has any effect at all. It's just swallowed up by the water and nothing much happens. One who sees the Buddha, sees the Dhamma, and sees karma more and more through the practice. And this is how the Buddha encouraged us to express our devotion, our faith for the Buddha and his enlightenment is through the practice. Developing the path, increasing our faith, our confidence in Noble One, in the Buddha, in the Noble One. 
increasing our faith and confidence in the path of practice that leads to the end of suffering. recitation of Patimokha. We're constantly using these occasions to reflect on our sila, our vinaya as a starting point. When we become aware of any errors in our behavior through body, speech and mind, make amends, then make set our minds to change, improve, learn from experience, see where we may have gone wrong or suffering has arisen through our actions and make, make amends by setting our mind to change for the better, give up bad habits or ways of behavior that have made us brought forth suffering or caused some harm in some way. And that's a practice if you practice it every patimoka. That's going to be 26 times a year. And over the years, that will mount up to hundreds of times that you're reflecting very, perhaps in a very focused, deep way on your life and on your, particularly on your sila, the level of sila, your actions, your speech, and the mind states that lie behind them. So naturally your mind will become more aware, more have more understanding of where unwholesome karma slips into our body, speech and mind through bitterness, greed, anger, delusion. Our awareness will improve, our wisdom will improve, understanding what leads to what, where suffering comes from and what to do about it, how to apply the path to remedy it. obviously saw it as a skillful means for us to regularly re reflect on our sila <coughs> so that we develop that solid foundation of wholesome dhammas in our external behavior that will lead back into our internal behavior. When the mind settles down, when we're practicing the Vinaya well, we understand what we must do, we've learned it, we know how to look after our mind, our body, speech and mind, then the mind settles down very quickly. And this is a duty we have to take seriously as a monk. The Buddha pointed out, if you've heard the Patimokha a few times, then you've no longer got an excuse not to keep the rules. It's our, the responsibility lies with us as individuals to learn the rules, the practices, the training rules and keep them best we can. But the karmic result is that the mind constantly being purified and constantly channeled into a wholesome direction. It bec becomes more natural, more normal for us to follow the way of wholesome dhammas through body, speech and mind and to abandon unwholesome dhammas through body, speech and mind. The more we practice it, becomes more natural, more normal, you might say easier, and the only easy way to 
develop this, this path is through practicing it. Mm. You gain through experience. Gain an understanding and gain some of the happiness that it brings. What Lumpur Cha used to say is, even though we practice generosity and sila, these can still go rotten on us though, because there's still that sense of self being one who practices dharma, practices sila, learns to chant, learns to dhamma, learns to meditate even. And in the beginning there's always this sense of self. So even some of the good we do can turn a bit rotten like fruit unless we develop bhavana as well. We develop the mindfulness and the ability to reflect on the more subtle, more refined aspects of the mind as we're practicing. But we can see even as we practice the precepts, any sense of self that forms around them is still a cause for suffering. Any clinging to a sense of self saying, I'm better than someone else who doesn't keep Vijayanaya as well as me. Or sometimes I'm worse than somebody else. I don't keep it as well as them. Either way, these kind of views lead to suffering. And so these can only be purified by developing bhavana. We learn to develop meditation techniques just to calm the mind down, still the mind through the practice of Yanapana Sati or Buddhanu Sati, as I was mentioning earlier. Whatever meditation technique we use, the aim is always to bring the mind to develop a present moment awareness using an object so that the mind becomes stronger in itself, less dependent on external sense impressions and thoughts and other mental objects becomes more independent of these things. We say like somebody who's formerly always been walking around with a walking stick because they had a bad leg and learning to walk properly and discarding their stick. And normally the untrained mind is so dependent on always having something to think about, something to indulge in, good or bad wholesome, unwholesome, pleasant or painful. As we develop more mindfulness in developing that quality of steadiness, stillness, strength of mind, it's out of that that wisdom can really see the way things are, that can see some of these truths, see how karma is affecting us, see where we are maybe getting caught up into more unwholesome negative intention. There's very much a waking up process as the mind becomes more still, more concentrated, then it's as if waking up from its sleep. <coughs> waking up from its dream state, kind of the normal thoughts, patterns we have in the mind that so often are leading us into misunderstanding, confusion, or often just directly into suffering of one kind or another. We're waking up and just stilling the mind, quietening the mind, 
so that we can take a fresh look, with, as it were, fresh eyes, the inner eye of the Dhamma, to look at our experience more closely. Again, the untrained mind is constantly going outwards through the senses. And our external eyes are constantly being stimulated, constantly looking for things and then reacting with pleasure and aversion, fascination, boredom, excitement, interest, revulsion and so on. Now we're opening the inner Dhamma eye, the inner eye of the Dhamma. We're developing some mindfulness and some constant mindfulness, learning to drop some of these external fascinations we have which can lead to so much confusion. We develop the inner eye of mindfulness. And that's where we can really see things clearly the way the way they are. See the nature of body and mind as impermanent suffering, not self. Until we learn to do this, then our even our knowledge of Buddhism tends to remain rather superficial what they call the, the sapwood rather than the heartwood. But it's still useful, still good, but we have to see the limits of the just intellectual understanding as opposed to the practice of what the Buddha taught. We have to learn how to turn our attention inwards to see the very root causes of our attachments and our wrong views and our clinging to wrong views. As you practice mindfulness, then always turn, begin contemplating the, the body, your physical body. Sometimes it's good to reflect, just as we reflect on our Vinaya training, we regularly, how we're keeping the rules and the practices, whether we're doing it correctly or not. Also reflect on our Dhamma practice regularly. Like say on a day in the evening, in your evening sitting or at some point in the evening, just reflect. Today, how how much attention did I play, pay to mindfulness of body? Say, the first foundation of mindfulness. And it might be quite possible you've let a whole day go by without really in any serious way practicing mindfulness of the body. Breaths were you mindful of today? How many posture changes were you mindful of today? How often did you return to the 32 parts or the four elements today? Now this isn't some kind of competition between people to see who's the best. It's simply a way of reflecting, personally reflecting to see whether you're putting effort and attention into the, the Buddhist path of practice, say the four foundations of mindfulness. And it can be frightening how easily a, a whole day can slip by where there's really been very little direct mindfulness of body, say. On the other hand, because we have a body here all the time, the opportunity for developing mindfulness of the body and the wisdom that can come from it is there at all times, 24 hours a day. When we 
first begin contemplating mindfulness of the directed to the body, it can seem complicated. Mm. There's the 32 parts, the four elements, the 10 asuka meditation practices. Seems like there's a lot even just to read about. But then maybe in a sense there's, that's useful because our mind is like the monkey mind that needs to run around doing some work before it will settle down. So give it some work and learn to run through the 32 parts of the body. Or if you find it simpler, we'll just start with the five meditation objects we're given when we ordain. And do it in a very systematic way. Give yourself time, a lot periods of time during the meditation to directing mindfulness to the hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin, so on. And the resistance to that, that's giving you an insight into how you've accumulated the sense desire, gamadanha, over the years, living in the world. It's why we're living in the world. And this is a sensual realm. It's because in the past we've allowed the mind to just run wild, following its senses, attaching to the senses, the pleasures and the pains that the senses bring. Because we've allowed that, that it's so hard to practice mindfulness of the body. Hard to restrain the senses, hard to direct the mind, to focus on the body, even one part of the body. And do it for a few moments and then straight away the mind is off elsewhere. Doesn't really want to stay there. So these practices are in their say cumulative, they're really practices you have to learn to develop over and over again, sincerely, in a devoted way, just as the Buddha encouraged us, and trust that repeated development of mindfulness directed to the body will bring some results, some good results. Again, it's the law of karma. If you let your mind wander around the sensual realm all the time, well, the result will be a lot of greed, anger and delusion, a lot of discontent, dissatisfaction. If you learn to train the mind, tame it, direct it to the body with mindfulness, then you're overcoming that. You're learning to develop a great sense of contentment, stillness of mind, and out of that, some clear understanding of the way things are. The understanding is nothing too difficult. It's just recognition, insight into clarity, into the impermanence of this body. Just come, keep coming back to the recognition that this body arises from a cause. It's here and it passes away. Hair keeps growing. Eventually it drops out if you go bald with aging drops out and then grows again. Skin is constantly changing. You know, whichever body part you turn to, it's kind of almost like shouting out at you to see the impermanent nature and the unsatisfactory nature of the physical body. Ultimately, it's not in your power. It's not self. You can't control it. 
own it, make it do what you want. It's anatta. So the three characteristics start to pop out at you very quickly when there is some sustained mindfulness directed to the body. But in the end, we, you know, we, we have to do it. We have to give it the chance, give the mind the chance to learn from its experience. So we have to give it that experience. You know, it's like a kid at school. You go to the school, but if you don't attend the lessons, or you're in the lessons, but you don't attend to the, what the teacher's saying or the books, well, you, you can't expect to pass the exams. If we don't give our own mind time, then we're not really going to deeply understand these meditations, whether it's samatha meditation or vipassana. We have to learn this, but it is cause and result. So if we do put in the time and the effort, that's the cause, then the result starts to come. And the result is really just samwega, you know, that's waking up to the way things are, sobering up the mind, nibida, and turning away from the old habit of constantly following, craving, seeking, wanting, trying to get more, starting to weary of that, turn away from it. And it's accompanied by these kind of insights accompanied by pity and sukha, which shows you that you're going in the right direction in the practice. And if reflecting on the body is leading to pity and sukha, that's a sign that you're doing it correctly. That sense of deeper contentment and happiness upon seeing the true nature of the body and the mind turning away from its former attraction. That could be any of the 32 parts or the four elements or most lightly over time merging into the two. You know, the more you contemplate, the more the elements come out of the 32 parts. Or if you contemplate the asupa, gamatana, the cemetery reflection, the more obvious it becomes the way the body is made up of the four elements. And the four elements disband and go back to the earth to the water often we already know which part of the body we find holds our attention easily and it's an intuitive thing you know, the teachers often talk about how animita may arise but often before that's even happened you'll have a sense of where you get some understanding and insight when you reflect on your body with mindfulness. But sometimes it may be a, a limiter, just a flash usually at first because our sati and our samadhi is not very deep, not well sustained. So you might just get a flash of some body part or some aspect of the body. You see the body as a corpse, then it's gone. But if you keep practicing developing those same meditation routines and then reflecting in the same way all those images and insights may sustain for longer obviously if you develop some deeper samadhi the level of upajara samadhi then 
may have an, an a supernimitta of one sort or another arise and stay in the mind for a long time. The mindfulness and the samadhi deepens, then you may be even to be able to hold that nimitta at will. You see, this is, again, it's the law of karma. If we keep giving attention to these practices, then our skill and just the acceptance of the, the practice and the peace and the happiness that comes from it will sustain our efforts so that we're willing to go deeper and, and can sustain our efforts longer. And the whole point is that when the mind becomes calm, the hindrances subside and the, the mind is peaceful within itself. And that's why it, it's willing to look at that which is difficult to look at. Obviously a supergamatan is not easy to do. Our, our habit is always to look for the beauty in things. We're attracted to beauty. That's, that's what we're used to. But if some pity and sukha arises as we're contemplating a super, the super of the body, then obviously that perception, the way of looking at things changes and it can actually become peaceful and a source of happiness to see the body in its true light as unattractive and the mind turning away to a state of, of peace and clarity. The more that's sustained, then the more not only faith in the practice arises, but more the wisdom sees this is the way to really remove suffering from our experience. Obviously, to completely abandon attachment to the body, and that's practicing to the level of a non-returner, an anagama, but to develop the view based on clarity of insight that the body is impermanent, not self. That we can do very quickly. And then just to sustain that view so we're no longer doubting it, no longer lost, fumbling around, sure, not sure about it. But the mind becomes absolutely clear that this, is, this body is impermanent rises, it ceases, it must die. It's no real refuge, no real source of lasting happiness for us. That kind of view we can all develop very quickly if we put our efforts to it. And then what else is there to take in this world? If you can see that the body is impermanent, arises, it ceases, it's ultimately not yours to have, to own, then what else can we have and own in this world? Because it all depends on the body, doesn't it? As the Buddha said, you know, the, by focusing on this body, you see the world, you see the origin of the world, you see the cessation of the world, you see the path that leads to the cessation of the world within this body, this fathom-long body. So out of that, all the more refined, insights into the Dhamma and into the, the mental Dhammas of the Khandas, perception, consciousness, thought formation become revealed.
it's up to us to do this practice. And if you have any sense, any intuition that there's a particular part of this body or aspect of the body, you know, just seeing the body as in its decayed state as a corpse, or seeing some, at least focusing the mind on some aspect of the body, something that appeals to you, holds your attention, will really put your heart into working with that. Get some information, look at pictures, books, picture books, look at dead animals in the forest. You can even look at yourself in a mirror if you're using skillfully as a way to develop mindfulness and insight. Or when you do notice other people, you focus on the, the super aspects of the body. on your character, your personality. Some people prefer the externals, others prefer the internals. As the Kruger Ajans used to say, like, you go and visit someone like Lumpo Tate and Lumpo Kamdan, a few, many other teachers, they would always say, have you seen your bones yet? It's just a little reflection to see whether you're really following what the Buddha taught. You know, are you spending your time developing mindfulness directed to the body to see the three characteristics in this body? So try it. Run through the different bones in the body. Maybe there's one particular area that will grab your attention. The skull, the vertebrae, the chest, cage, the arm bones, the leg bones, the fingers, toes, pelvis. You don't have to know the Latin name, you can just visualize it based on memory from a book. Or even send your mind around your own body, kind of sense your bones, notice the joints. As you're walking meditation, notice the joints in your bones moving. When we crack our bones, when we crack our fingers or straighten our back, you notice that, the hardness of the bones. The skeleton is what holds your body up. Notice that. As you move your body around, as you lie in bed or you're sitting or you're walking, notice the bones. If you bump your head, notice how it's the skull that is taking that bump. of the body you're focusing on. And you can even experiment a bit. Lumpur Anand was once teaching this. He said, if you're finding it difficult to contemplate the bones, well, make them the most beautiful bones you can. Make them very white, shiny, glistening, beautiful bones. Just as you know, a mental image that you construct as a, as a tool for meditation. Maybe later you might dare to change the color. You know, if you're aging of bones, especially once somebody has passed away, or you see a dead animal, see how the bones change color, go from white to brown, light brown, dark brown. The bones in a crematorium. 
forest, see how they break and crack. We've had a number of deer and kangaroo die that occasionally we don't bury. And you can go back to that same spot and you can't really see anything. Obviously a fair amount of the bones have been carted off by the foxes or wild dogs. in this world since it started just mountains and mountains every part of the world will have bones in there somewhere but we just don't see them anymore and that's what when you go to the, the beach you know, that's mostly what the sand is it's all the bones of crustaceans other sea creatures There's so many ways into these reflections. It's actually giving yourself time, directing your mind to the mindfulness of the body, the 32 parts, the four elements. The aim should be to the point where you see that they're just empty of self. And there's no point to grasp at that which is not self. When the mind, when Nibbida arises, it's the mind is turning away from what it formerly grasped and identified with. It goes to stillness, goes to an inner peace, an inner happiness that doesn't want to grasp anymore at that which is impermanent, which is not self. So whenever insight arises, it is accompanied by joy, even though it seems to arise out of something quite unpleasant. The mind goes to peace. And maybe a very deep, profound peace that stays with you. And nothing can shake that peace, an unshakable peace. It's the, the mind of insight that just knows the way things are. And even though we're still subject to our karma, we still have to live in the world and get some unpleasant experiences, some pleasant experiences coming through our sense doors inside the mind receives them all with that steadiness, the unshakable peace that knows this is just the way things are, everything is impermanent it's not self great relief, you don't have to cling to what is only going to bring you pain and suffering and the human body only ages, only brings us more pain the longer we're in the world any insight we have into it the three characteristics seeing them in the body can only bring us a sense of relief happiness you can let go of this body so we have some time left maybe we can uh, carry on meditating so I'll finish the talk there